So we're in our fifth week of a study in the book of Ecclesiastes, and as I said last week, I love this book. It's the only genre in the book of the Bible that is philosophy. You know, there's lots of genres in the Bible. There's narrative and history and love poetry, but Ecclesiastes is the only book in the Bible that is the genre of philosophy. The author of the book of Ecclesiastes is a person by the name of Kohelet. It means gatherer. And as we saw last week, Kohelet is giving us a very frank and gritty description of the way the world comes to us. Technically, in, the brand, in philosophy, this kind of approach is called phenomenology. It's an examination of the study of phenomena, the way the world comes to us in order to get to the noumena. Phenomena, noumena, Immanuel Kant, you philosophers are going right now, it's awesome. Uh, another thing we saw last week is Ecclesiastes was written as a corrective to Proverbs. Uh, so Proverbs comes with this kind of idea that if you follow this wisdom, your life is going to work in a way that is successful. But uh, Kohelet comes along and he wants to let us know that even if we live a life of wisdom, it doesn't necessarily mean things will go smoothly. He reminds us that life has not only beauty, but ugliness, not only goodness, but senseless tragedy. Uh, that life has both moments of poignant meaning as well as strange absurdity. And this recognition of uh, life is not only a beautiful place, but also a place where there's ugliness and darkness makes the book of Ecclesiastes unique in that it pushes against a lot of the enlightenment hubris that, came, that, that comes along and says that humanity with its own reason and its own ability is going to pull itself up. And this kind of tacit, implicit doctrine of progress that we see that came out of the enlightenment. Ecclesiastes then reads much more like a late modern book in certain ways, this kind of push against this faith in reason and in progress. Like a David Foster Wallace encyclopedic digressive novel that refuses a meta-narrative or Kurt Vonnegut's solipsism or a Cormac McCarthy's struggle against indeterminate forces, Ecclesiastes embraces the enigmatic nature of life. I had to read that sentence because I like it. I like it. All right. So I won't read everything, but that was a good one, right? Okay. I, yeah, sorry. Okay, you need to read some David Foster Wallace. But the idea here is that Ecclesiastes pushes against it pushes against this kind of idea that man is, has it all figured out and that man is going to continue to progress into greater and greater states. As Ecclesiastes 1.9 says, what has been is what will be, what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. That doesn't mean that there isn't change, but that change always is uh, uh, within a larger context in which there are limitations that human beings have. And so Ecclesiastes challenges a lot of our kind of assumptions within our culture. One of them is that we're gonna have an Instagram life where you know, all of our glossy photos and posts are going to um, uh, be the truth. The truth of the matter is, is our lives are a mixture, you know, and we only see half of it on social media. Um, as Ecclesiastes 11, eight reminds us there will be many dark days. As Ecclesiastes chapter three reminds us that there's not just times of laughing and dancing and seeking and loving, but also times of weeping and mourning and loss and hatred. So last week we looked at how Kohelet pushes against modernism. But today we're going to see Kohelet is an equal opportunity offender. Today we're gonna to see that Ecclesiastes not only pushes against modernism with its faith in reason and progress, but it also pushes against aspects of late modernism with its belief that all of reality can become encapsulated within the self. In other words, Ecclesiastes challenges not only modernism's doctrines of reason and progress, as we saw last week, by arguing that we must give darkness its due, but this week we're gonna see that Ecclesiastes challenges late modernism's collapse of reality into the self by arguing that we must give God his due. Uh, the text this morning, as you heard read, is Ecclesiastes chapter 5, 1 to 7. And I want to warn you, it's like I have two unsettling sermons in a row. Last week was depression. Well, this week is going to be a little bit unsettling in a different way. Last week we saw that Kohelet took the kid gloves off and said, hey, look, there's real evil. There's real darkness in this world. You can't escape it. There's randomness. There's tragedy. Um... And, and you need to take that serious. Well, this week, we're going to look at a text where Ecclesiastes is going to say, look, there is a God. There is a being of unsurpassable excellence. And you need to take that being absolutely serious. 
As much as you might want to dismiss that being, as much as you might want to pretend that God is a figment of the imagination or God is just some great grandpa that's up in heaven who just turns a blind eye towards everything, the reality is, according to Ecclesiastes, you were made by God, you were made for God, and one day you are going to stand before God and give an account for your life. And these are unsettling truths in our late modern world. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at this message in Ecclesiastes. According to Ecclesiastes Kohelet, we must give God his due. And so this morning I want to look at what Kohelet says about giving God his due. And I'm going to to, uh, put this under three points in order to organize our thoughts. The first is, is he's going to tell us why it's hard. We're going to look at why it's hard to give God his due. Um, And there I'm going to do a little bit more cultural exegesis. Um, Those of you that want to get right into the text, uh, you'll just have to be a little patient, but I think it'll pay off. And then the second point is how we give God his due, and that's we're going to look at Ecclesiastes 5, 1 to 7 in more detail. And then finally, we're going to talk about the key behind all of this. What is it really that anchors the soul when it comes to giving God his due? So that is where we're going this morning. All right. First, I want to do a little cultural exegesis of why giving God his due is hard for us. Um, we live in a world that is been, has been described as a culture of self-fulfillment. Um, philosopher Charles Taylor says this, we live in an age where it is a given that everyone has a right to develop their own form of life grounded on their own sense of what is really important or value. People are called upon to be true to themselves and to seek their own self-fulfillment. What this consists of, each, uh, each must, in the last instance, determine for him or herself. No one else can or should try to dictate its contents. So this is the culture of self-fulfillment. It's a culture where the self is lifted up. There's a certain kind, if I was to describe the air, the water we, we, we drink, the air we breathe, it's a culture of selfism, where there is nothing higher than the self. Uh, social uh, critic Christopher Lash calls this the culture of narcissism. It involves a centering of life on the self and its preferences, and shutting out or even being just completely unaware of greater issues or concerns that transcend the health, self, whether they be religious or political or historical. Uh, moral uh, psychologist Jonathan um, Haidt identif- uh, Haidt identifies this kind of selfism with what's called not relativism, but a new kind of morality. It's the reality that, it's the idea that morality is based on the individual. And the individual's own preferences and ideas are the very source and locus of all moral thinking. Um, and so therefore, there are no moral sources of authority outside the self. If, if I decide that something is right for me, then that is what is right. And for someone else to say there's some other moral authority in my life that has bearing on me, it's a deeply, deeply offensive thing in a culture of the self. And so this is the world that we're in. And here is what we find out. The book of Ecclesiastes comes along and Kohelet comes along and says, no, 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 no. We are creatures. There is a God, he is our creator, and everything good in the world finds its ultimate source in him. That's Ecclesiastes chapter 2. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Kohelet says, Our understanding is limited and piecemeal, but God knows everything. He is the one who actually is the source of all wisdom and knowledge. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 12 and 15, Kohelet says, Our work is fragile and contingent. Our lives are fleeting. That's the word hevel, right? Whereas God's work is permanent and immovable, and God is eternal, God is the only anchor for the soul. And then finally, in the the text we saw today, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and then again in chapter 12, Kohelet comes and says, we are made by God and for God, and we must give an account to God. We were made for God. And here's the thing. In our culture of the self, belief in God is a deeply, deeply, offensive thing. I know we like to think that belief in God is just a neutral subject, but it's not. In a culture of selfism where self-fulfillment is the highest aim, to say that there is a God and that that God is the greatest good and that God's uh, 
that God deserves all of our attention, praise, and worship dislodges the self. To say that there is a being of unsurpassed greatness before whom the self is utterly accountable to is offensive in a culture of the self. To say not that our views are binding, but that God's views are binding, that God is all-knowing, that is deeply troubling in a culture of the self. See, this idea of God puts us in our place, or in the words of Kohelet, God is in heaven and you are on earth. Notice the gap. It puts us in our place. So this idea, we're going to look at what it means for us to actually take God serious, to give God his due. This idea of living before a being for whom and to whom we belong is threatening. But this is not news entirely. Paul in Romans 1 says that people don't like the idea of God. Long before Freud, Paul was telling us that people want to suppress the knowledge of God, that it's disquieting, that it's troubling. It's not a neutral subject. Living before the face of God, acknowledging God, giving God his due is hard, but it's even harder in a culture of narcissism. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 to 7 understands this, so it gives us some instructions on how to give God his due. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And how do we do it? Well, look at it. It's right there in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1. It says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. This is talking about worship. It's talking about worship. Now, if you are a Christian, the word worship is very common. But if you're not a Christian, the word worship might sound strange, like a strange religious word. But the reality is, everyone worships. People might say, I'm not religious. I don't worship. Well, well, the reality is everybody has a highest good. Everybody has something that they are giving their time and their treasure and their talents to. Everybody has something that they, they live in fear that they might lose, something that captures their imagination and their emotions. This is part of what it means to be a human being. You don't need to be a religious person in order to recognize that you create a hierarchy of value and the thing at the top of your values is what you give your worth ship to. That's what you claim is worthy of your lifetime and attention. So worship is not something that's just a religious category. Now, in the chapters 1 and 2, Ecclesiastes tells us about Kohelet's search for something that, that are for the biggies, some of the big things that people give their time and attention and talents too. He talks about, I checked out wealth. You know, I amassed wealth for myself. I built beautiful houses. You know, I, I had all kinds of pleasures. I, you know, I had women. You know, I had all kinds of status and knowledge. And then Kohelet tells us, and these things didn't do it for me. See, so he's paying attention. This is phenomenology. He's paying attention to his life. He said, I did this, I tried it, and it didn't do it for me. Now, a lot of people think that if they just pursue the American dream, that they are going to come to a place where they're going to have it all and they're going to reach this amazing moment. But remember, life is filled with beauty and ugliness. It's filled with good days and bad days. And it doesn't matter how big your bank account is. It doesn't matter how beautiful your wife is. It doesn't matter it doesn't matter. Life has ups and downs. And so if you are pursuing happiness, it is a vain quest. It's an empty quest because life, happiness is just based on happening. And happening changes, right? Our lives change every day. Don't you wake up some days and think like, man, I've had kind of a good stretch of life. So what's about to hit? See, that's just because we know the way life works. Life has ups and downs. And, and so Ecclesiastes 1 and 2, Kohelet says, you can go for those biggies, the, the popular ones, but I gotta let you know, it's empty. It's not gonna do it. According to the Bible, the core problem with humanity is really a worship problem. God is the source of all life, all splendor, all beauty, all majesty. We were made by God, we were made for God. And therefore, because we were forged in the cauldron of God's love, of God's being, we have this, this, we're made in God's image, and God has set eternity in our hearts, and the only thing that will deeply satisfy us is God's self. God himself. 
Now that satisfaction isn't the sense of happiness. The Bible uses the word joy. Joy, only when we have God as our ultimate end, only when we choose to worship God and God alone as our highest good, can we know joy. In many ways, I've said this before, but this kind of idea that the self is this giant cavern and and this infinite thing that we need to go down deep into, it's a very Augustinian view of the self, but the problem is St. Augustine said at the bottom of the self was God, and that as we travel down into ourselves, we should be looking for God, the very source and the very foundation of the self. So that's a little aside there on a theology of the self. So Ecclesiastes tells us to guard your steps when you go to the house of God, when it, that we were made for worship, but, and this is this interesting thing, there's a warning, guard your steps. Note the warning. See, the idea is that even though you might be in the right place to find joy, namely a place where God is worshipped, things can go terribly wrong. See, the problem is, is in our culture of narcissism, we can come into a place where God is worshipped, and yet the self is never displaced. And Ecclesiastes is going to talk about this. Ecclesiastes goes on, and he says, just shortly after that, he says, guard your steps when you come to the house of God to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. The sacrifice of fools is the person, what is a fool? I mean, a fool is a person that basically doesn't know what's going on, okay? (laughs) Like, you read the book of Proverbs, the fool is a person that doesn't realize, hey, you know, winter's coming, I should be working right now. You know, the fool is a person that walks into a social setting and just makes a blunder. The fool is, you know, they're over at their neighbor's house early in the morning, and the neighbor's like, dude, like, don't you understand boundaries? I mean, the fool is a person that doesn't get it. And, and the fool is the person that comes into a house of worship where everybody is focusing on the supreme good, which is God's self, and the fool doesn't get it. And they go through the same thing, just as like the person would go into the temple and offer the sacrifice. The fool goes and they do all the same things, but they don't know they're doing evil. And the reason they're doing evil is because they never actually engaged in what worship is. So in our culture of narcissism, we can easily become this fool, this fool that comes into church, and instead of realizing this is a time and a place to worship the unsurpassed beauty and grandeur of God, they think this is a time when they think, am I entertained? Is this something that I like? Do I like the style of music? Are they playing my, my favorite song? Does this meet my preferences? Do I like the preacher? When's that Josh guy coming back? I'm not coming back until Josh comes back. There's people that don't go to church unless they have their favorite preacher. Guard your steps if that's you. Guard your steps because you're playing with fire. Because you're taking our culture of selfism, which says it's about me and my preferences, and you're coming into the house of worship and you're saying, it's on my terms. You know what? Guard your steps. Church is not about us. If you think the role of the church is to weakly give you religious goods and services that you then stand back and say, oh, did I like that? Do I not like that? Let me critique that. Do I like the coffee? Is my favorite brand? Like, I got news for you. That's not what this is about. Guard your steps. Church is not a social club where we go to be with our favorite people. Church is not a public lecture where we get to debate theological ideas. Church is not a concert where we get to sing along with our favorite songs. Church is not a car wash for your soul where you rinse off before another sinful week. Church is not a movie or play where you sit back, relax, and are entertained. Church is not a self-help group where you recite positive aphorisms. Church is not a yoga yoga studio where you come to get re-centered. Church is not a place where you come to emotionally fill up after a draining week. One of the things I love about our church is that we have wooden pews. No one's going to mistake this for a movie theater. You know, if you're looking to where you put your cup, we don't have that, okay? And I'm not not knocking churches that have, the church I was at before had these awesome, like, you know, kind of like theater seats, you know? But the reality is, it's hard not to kind of move into that kind of like, you know, you know, no, 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 no. Dangerous, dangerous. 
Praise God for wooden pews. Okay, so, see, church is where we come to worship the living, eternal, triune God. Worshiping God is not one of the things that we do at church. Worship is what we do at church. And you can do worship more, worship is bigger than singing, right? There's lots of ways we worship. You can worship by sitting and listening attentively like many of you are right now. You can worship by, you know, we, we do lots of things when we worship. You can worship by praying. You can worship by hearing God's word. You can, you can worship when you're out and you're working in your job. So what is worship? Worship is about something different. It's about this posture of listening as we read. But we come together every week to corporately face God, to acknowledge God's worthiness, to proclaim the excellence of who God is, the greatness of what God has done. It's a time to forget about ourselves. It's a time to forget about ourselves at least for an hour and to turn our attention to our creator, the one who made us. You know, I love this stained glass. I spend so much time, I love church history, I love art history. I teach, I've taught classes on art history. I love this stained glass. Uh, I love the angels there. You know, it's actually a trinity of angels, which is very telling, okay? So I have a whole, I'm gonna give a whole talk on this stained glass someday. But, you know, these angels are great, they're good. They're definitely more symbolic because the Bible tells us that if an angel actually appeared here, it would scare the daylights out of us. And the Bible, anytime an angel shows up, people are freaked out. And the Bible tells us that before the throne room of God, there are angels and archangels, incredible creatures that cry out continually, holy, holy, holy. That is the center of reality. That is the center of the universe. And when we come together here, we need to guard our steps because we are joining with the throng of heaven to add our voice, to call out to this God who has made us. We need to guard our steps. So, to do this, to worship, we engage in what has historically been called liturgy. Liturgy comes from the Greek word liturgia. We have some Greek people in the audience today. You can critique my Greek this morning. It literally means the work of the people. It's translated in two words, litos ergos, or public service. So sometimes we talk about liturgy or we talk about a worship service, to serve. So the question is, who's doing the service? People in the band? Me? It's the work of the people. We come here not to sit back and is this my preferences? We come here to do work. We come the first day of the week. We take the first of our time, the first of our week, and we take our time and our energy and we focus on God. Not to be entertained, not to criticize, but in order to listen to God's word, in order to to practice the ordinances of the bread and the cup, to sing songs of adorations and praise to God. We do this by positioning our bodies to honor God, to draw attention to God, to acknowledge God, to stand when we hear his word, to bow when confessing our sin, to sit and listen attentively when the word is preached, to, to have our faces upward and with our hands up and praising God. And we do all this as an act of surrender and submission. So, and, and here's the thing. The thing the fool doesn't get, the thing the fool doesn't get, is the fool doesn't listen. Now, listening is not just about hearing. It's not that the fool comes and doesn't hear the music. The fool uh, offers this sacrifice, um, and it's, it's, it's an evil thing they're doing because they don't listen. And why is listening so important? Well, the word listening and fool should immediately draw us to Proverbs because there's a, that's a huge theme in the book of Proverbs. And here are some Proverbs that give us clues as to what the problem is with this foolish worshiper. Proverbs 4.10 says, Listen, my son, accept what I say, and the years of your life will be many. Proverbs 8.32 says, And so, my children, listen to me, for happy are all who follow my ways. Listen to my counsel and be wise. Don't ignore it. Proverbs 16.20 says, Those who listen to instruction will prosper. Those who trust the Lord will be happy. So listening is not just about hearing. It's about a certain kind of attitudinal stance. It's a posture of humble receptivity in which you're willing to do whatever God tells you to do. See, when we come in here on a Sunday morning, 
you don't know what God is going to tell you, but you know what? If God is God, God can tell you to do whatever God wants to tell you to do, and you have to do it because God is God. And that should put us in our place. That might make us want to think twice before we come to worship, right? Because if God is God, God has the right to say whatever. And when we come, and, and so, but there's really interesting, there's this kind of father-son kind of language in Proverbs, right? And just like, just like a, a, a good child comes before their parent, and they have a receptivity to that parent's direction, and there's a humble posture. So the fool doesn't come in with this attitude of like, this humble attitude of um, receptivity and responsiveness, but instead goes through the motions and never ever thinks differently about what they're doing. This problem is a common theme throughout the Bible. Um, it's, it's captured in the refrain, to obey is better than sacrifice. Look at 1 Samuel 15, 22. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. So God is not deceived by externals. One of the, thing that's, one of the things that's amazing is, is that when we come here, you know, we don't, we don't come here because God is homeless, all right? It's not like, you know, poor God, let's build him a house, you know. Oh, gosh, you know, I hope he likes this. You know, God, what, what, you know, what color do you want the walls? Now, this is not about God. This is a chance for us to come together and to focus on God, okay? But, but God sees everything all the time. And so when you woke up this morning, God's known everything that's gone through your minds and my mind before I even got here. We live our life, uh, Koram Deo, before the presence of God. God sees everything all the time. As it says in Hebrews 4.13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And so as we worship, God sees our hearts. God knows exactly what's going on. God knows what our fundamental allegiances are. God knows what's really capturing our affections and attentions. God's not, God's not deceived by anybody that ever worships him. God knows exactly what's going on in their hearts. And so that's why um, this issue of our attitude, an attitude of absolute surrender and obedience of open hands and focus on God. Like, I'm, I'm putting myself aside, I'm going to stop thinking myself, and I'm going to focus on you. That's what God is looking for. And I'm going to do that with this, this posture of receptivity. That's what God is looking for. And the fool, see, they offer the sacrifices and they all the stuff, but their heart is never a heart of obedience. It's never a heart of submission, never a heart where they're going to follow God. So, uh, this attitude is really important. Now the text gives us two ways in which we can actually test whether we have the right posture of submission, of obedience, of this kind of, the, the right attitude to worship. And it, it talks about two ways in which we can test this. And one of them is in our prayers, and the other one is in our vows. First, we'll look at prayers. Ecclesiastes 5, 2 to 3 says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. I'm preaching a sermon on listening. This is a little, you know, I, I recognize the irony, okay? Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Man, I sat with that this week, and it rocked me. I examined my prayer life, and I thought, whoa, this pastor needs to change some things. Do you recognize the kind of heart that has this posture towards God? The, the New Living Translation says, as you enter the house of God, keep your ears open and your mouth shut. I like that. It captures the strongness of this language. It's strong language. I heard a pastor describe 
a meeting that was put together between this seasoned pastor, this man of God who had this amazing track record of ministry and, and had so much to offer these young pastors. And these young pastors were handpicked and they were brought together and they all had notebooks and they were really looking forward to having this time with this, this, uh, this godly man, very present, amazing Christian leader. And, and the Christian leader ahead of time had prayed for them individually and they all came together uh, and, and just as a courtesy, started off by saying, well, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourselves? And as they went around, everybody just kind of briefly introduced themselves. They got to one pastor, and he just started talking, and he went on and on. Oh, so good to meet you. I've read all your books. You know, back in my church, we have this situation, da-da-da. But, you know, that reminds me of da-da-da. And I wondered what you thought about that. But on the other hand, da-da-da. And he went on. Uh, Mr. Blabbermouth just went on and on and on and on. And these other pastors don't really know each other, so they're just kind of looking at each other like, you know, what do we do here? You know, looking at their eyes, when is, you know, Pastor Pontificate going to put a sock in it? And, you know, just going on and on and on. And then finally, this one pastor who had a low tolerance for pain, uh, it kind of a, he, he finally just stood up and said, you just need to shut up. Not really the etiquette at pastor meetings. Um, but you know, there's something glorious about that because he did need to shut up, right? He needed to put it, because you know what? You're wasting this valuable time. You're in the same boat as all these other guys and here's somebody that can teach you something. Here's somebody that has something for you and you're just talking and talking and talking. And oftentimes our prayer life is like that. We come into God's presence and this is the creator of the universe who holds all mystery and all things holds all things in his hand, who has everything we need for life and godliness. And we just hit the ground talking. Talking, talking, talking. Jesus, you're my co-pilot. You just sit right there and listen. I got a lot to say. You're my tonto. You're my number two. You know, you're my plus one. I've got, you just stay. No, 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 Jesus, let me, I got a lot to say here. And I'm sure the Lord's like, sure, I I have so much to learn here. Why, why do we talk why do we talk so much like that when we come into God's presence? Why all the words? Well, there's lots of possibilities. Maybe we're doing it in order to impress God. You know, sometimes people that want to control the conversation and dominate with talking, they're trying to create an image of themselves. So there's some kind of psychological thing going on here, okay? Sometimes people do that in prayer, right? When you're ever in a prayer time with people and it's like they're giving their, their resume, you know, and Lord, thank you for that time when I was on missions and we were thrown in jail and oh, praise you that we were so amazing. Uh, maybe, maybe they're giving their laundry list, right, of all the things they want God to do. Just jumping right in, you know. Gosh, God, I, I know you've been waiting there to, you know, to do everything I want you to do. It's kind of like God, like they're the, the employer and God's the employee, you know. It's like, okay, I'm glad you're at work. We got, we got work to do. You got work to do, God. You know, um, it's, like, it's like they're treating God like a bellhop. You know, what's a bellhop's job? Their job is just to do whatever you tell them to do. Carry these up to room number seven, da, da, get my keys, da, da, da. God is not our bellhop. God's not a college kid, you know, on summer break looking for a job, okay? So, God, so we're treating God like our servant. Or maybe there's lots of words because they're manipulating God, right? Um, maybe they're trying to, trying to control God. Maybe they think that they can somehow get God wowed, you know, by, you know, their King James English or the fact, you know, they've got $20 words. But here's the thing. God's not impressed with us. God's never been impressed with anybody. There's never been a human being on the earth that God has thought, now that's impressive. I, I have some things to learn here. It's amazing. Wow, this, this guy must have gotten an A in his English class. God's not impressed. But you know what's amazing? God loves us. God never sits back and is amazed by us, but you know what? God loves us. God's not our servant. God can't be dominated or manipulated. God is absolutely sovereign. If you have your bulletin, you'll see this quote in it. This is by John Webster. I love it. To encounter God is to be encountered by that which we can never master which can never become an object, an idea, or pattern of words or experience that we can retrieve and inspect at will. We can't comprehend God, which means we can't capture God. God is absolutely free. God is absolutely free and sovereign, and there's no way we can manipulate God to do our bidding. 
Now, paganism is all about manipulating God to do our bidding, and that's a whole other sermon, right? And maybe that's what's going on here, right? We're going we're gonna to go, and we're going to offer these sacrifices, and we're going to try to get God to do what we want, you know? And a lot of times people do that. Dear God, you know, if, if, if please, if my girlfriend's not pregnant, I swear I'll go to church every week. I'll tithe 40%, you know? See what you're doing when you're doing that? Please, God, oh, God, please, if you just, please, just do this. Get my, do this, do this, please, God. Then, then I'll do this. See, you're already responding to God in a way that is not about coming in absolute humility and openness and saying, you are God, you are Lord. What do you want? Whatever you want, I am your servant. I once had somebody in my life that would call me up and they would talk forever. One time I timed them, they were on the phone for two hours. I put it down. I went and got like something to eat. I know this is terrible, but seriously, after an hour in, you're like, okay, I don't even need to be here for this thing, right? Come back, and they're still going. Now I was hungry. You know, and then at the end, like, okay, gotta go. Have you ever had somebody like that in your life? Seriously? You know what that feels like? Like, you're just using me. You're just, this isn't even about me. And here's the thing, you know, when I was a, when I was a new Christian, you know, I, I was taught that our prayer should be extemporaneous. So, you know, my prayer time was kind of like I would just kind of reach in and where am I at, you know, Jesus? And Lord, just thank you for this morning and got a little crook in my back. And, you know, Jesus, just I just, I just freely associate about last night and, oh, maybe I had too much cake, but Lord, this morning. And I don't know, do I like her? I don't know, Lord, you tell me. But, you know, Jesus, I mean, crazy rambling prayers. And the guy that was discipling me said, hey, listen, I listened to your prayers and you, you got some things wrong here okay? You need to start off your prayer time by reading God's Word, listening to God. Before you start talking to God, you need to spend some time listening to God, meditating on what God has already told you. We live in a world where God has already spoken. Everything we see around us in creation is a result of God speaking. Okay, God has already spoken through Jesus Christ definitively, and that is a word that we can spend the rest of our lives exploring and meditating on and responding to and listening to. God is a God who's already spoken. We do not need to just go at God with a bunch of words. We need to start by responding to God and listening to God. And if you do that, if you start with God's word, it will transform your prayer life. The second way we can test whether or not we have the right kind of attitudinal posture is in terms of our vows. In terms of our vows. He says, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. What is a vow? A vow is a binding promise we make. And everybody makes vows. Everybody makes vows. And just a quick word about vows. You know, some vows, most of our vows, are actually internal vows. Some of you walked in here today and you're never gonna, you're single and you're never gonna date another person because someone broke your heart and you made an internal vow, I will never, ever put myself in that position again. Some of you have internal vows that came out of pain in your childhood and there's things you, there's, there's ways that those vows control your life. Some of you woke up, you know, and you thought, man, I, I gotta lose 30 pounds and you've made a vow, like I am losing 30 pounds and you've made a vow, you've made that promise to yourself. See, vows are really important in terms, they have a certain kind of control in our life. And so some of our vows are internal vows. But then there are external vows. And these are vows that we, we make publicly. They're vows that we, maybe we make to another person. Um, and maybe we make them before God and witnesses, right? Like on your marriage day. So these vows are um, very important. Um, and the thing is, in our culture of the self, all right, Oftentimes, anything that gets in the way of the self is then disregarded. But here's what Ecclesiastes says. It says, you know, God is watching, and God is listening. And when we make a promise to God, we have to treat that very serious. If you've made a promise that you're going to give a certain amount to God, take that very serious. You know why? God does. If you make a marriage vow before God, 
you need to take that very serious. A lot of times, people think marriage vows are just aspirational statements, you know, to have a hallmark moment before a bunch of people. You're like, oh, well, that's so touching. It's like, well, I didn't really mean I would, you know, love them through sickness and, and you know, that's just crazy. I didn't mean that. I just thought that was really, you know, kind of neat. No, no, no. God takes it serious. And this is something that is hard for us to understand. But when we use God's name and invoke God's name, in a way that we're not taking serious, we show that we have the heart of the fool that lives as if God is not really there. See, one of the marks of the fool is the fool doesn't realize the weight of their actions. And so, if you, ta- if you make a vow that includes God, take it serious. This is really a meditation on the fourth commandment, which says, don't take God's name in vain. So when you invoke God's name, realize God takes that serious, even if you don't. I had, a, I had a student when I was a professor who came in, I mean, like I was in an honors program, so I had half of their GPA was writing on what I thought of their work. I, I can destroy every student. Like if I thought, well, not very good work, like your, your GPA just went down in half. And this student came into my office and students would call me Dr. Cavolo, which, you know, you know, I wasn't like, you have to call me Dr. Cavolo, but yeah, it's probably a good idea. I have half your GPA. Um, and the student came in, put their feet up on my desk and said, what's happening, dude? And, and I just looked at them like, my name's Dr. Cavolo. <laughs> you know, like, you're using my name in vain. You don't want to mess with me. And you now are on my bad side. And you, we need to take God serious. There's the whole problem with this, this text is that there's people that are not taking God serious. There's people that say all the time, oh my God, don't do that. Do not invoke the name of God unless you mean it. You're breaking the fourth commandment. You're not taking God serious. You're using God's name in order to have an expression, a moment where you get people's attention. It's the same thing as coming in here and singing all these songs where we have all this God language and we don't mean a thing. And God sees that. And you need to guard your steps. You need to guard your mouth. And if you want to use some kind of deity's name in a profane way, say holy cow. That's what you need to do. If you have to profane some deity in order to get attention, my advice is not to do that at all. My advice is to take it serious. Because the Bible says we live before the face of God and God is closer than the person that's sitting next to you and sees everything we do. It's serious. So, Behind all this, and we'll close with this, behind all this, there's a key concept, and it ends with this. The text ends with this. It says, but God is the one you must fear. See, behind this whole text is this idea that we need to live with a fear of God. Now, this is a massive theme in the Bible. There's like 150 verses on fearing God. As it says in Proverbs, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. You know, Christians used to be known as God-fearing people, but today, fearing God has fallen on hard times in our culture of the self. The only thing you fear is that you're not able to actualize your deep potential because you have so much of it. No. You need to fear God. You need to fear God. Well, we ask, well, but doesn't true love cast out all fear? it does cast out a certain kind of fear. You know, the Puritans used to distinguish because the Bible distinguishes between two kinds of fear. On one hand, there is what, the, what John Bunyan calls slave fear. And then there's son fear. Slave fear and son fear. Everybody is going to fear. The question is, what kind of fear are you going to have? Everybody, by the way, will fear God. The Bible says every knee will bow. Some knees will bow out of slave fear. And some will bow out of sun fear. But fearing God is not an option. The question is, how, what kind of fear will you have? So let's talk about these two real quick. Slave fear. Slave fear is the dread of those who decide to have something else besides their creator as their ultimate treasure, as, their, as, as the thing that gets their time and attention. This is the person that refuses to acknowledge God as God or just discounts God or doesn't care about God. And they spend their life worshiping and serving things rather than the source of every good and perfect gift. The Bible says if you're doing this this morning, you have set yourself at odds with God. You are not acknowledging the one who has given you everything you have. 
You're not acknowledging the source of life. I know this is not a popular message today, but the reality is the Bible says it's a terrible thing to put yourself in opposition, to disrespect and discount God. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God, and you should dread. And if you're not dreading, you need to start it now. Because one day you will come face to face with God. Every single person, according to Ecclesiastes, according to Kohelet, every person is made by God, everybody was made for God, and everybody will have to give an account before God. And so this is slave fear. And if you're turning your back on God, you should have dread. But then there's another kind of fear. And this is sun fear. This is a deep awe. It's a respect. It's a deep, profound sense of gratitude. This is a unique posture that the one who comes before God, who is a child of God, has. Let's briefly look at these three things. The first thing that's involved in fear of God is awe. God is a unique being. God is triune. God is ontologically different from us. That means that there is a gap in reality between God and you that is an insurmountable chasm. God is creator and we are creation. It's not like God is, it's not like God is just, just, you know, a bigger man or someone who's been around a little bit longer. There's no comparison between us and God. He is triune. God is somehow three in one. We can't wrap our head around that. God has unique attributes. God is all-knowing. Just, just, spend, just spend an afternoon trying to wrap your head around the fact that God is all-knowing. I mean, think about that for once, like that, and we get to talk to this unsurpassable being that is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. God is omnipresent. God relates to space and time in a radically different way than we do. God is, is worthy of glory because, and, and, and uh, God is, is, is glorious and worthy of awe because God displays his glory in creation. The heavens are telling the glory of God. The firmament proclaims his handiwork, Psalm 19 tells us. God's work in creation is awesome. It's immense. It's intricate. It's diverse. And so when we look at the smallest aspects of creation or the biggest aspects of creation, we stand in awe, and that should give us awe towards the creator who made that. So the first thing the fear of God involves is awe. The second thing is reverence. God's unique uniqueness moves beyond just simply ontological categories and these attributes of omnis and his great works. God is also morally other. God's morality is surpassing brightness and brilliance. You know, you can be in awe of Genghis Khan, but you won't have reverence for Genghis Khan because Genghis Khan was an evil person, right? But God is not only, and God shouldn't be compared to Genghis Khan, but I'm just kind of making a distinction here. There's a distinction here, which is reverence is this idea about God's holiness. You know, the Bible tells us that surrounding the courts of God are angels crying out, holy, holy, holy. And what they're drawing attention to there is God is so pure, so righteous, so morally brilliant that when we see God, we can't help but stand in reverence. When Isaiah stood before God and saw just an image of God in his holiness, he said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. How could I have ever talked to a God that is so holy? I am absolutely undone. The awareness of God's moral grandeur creates this deep reverence, this deep respect, this esteem, this regard, the same regard that these angels that right now are calling out holy, holy, holy have. And so the second ingredient is reverence for God. Now, if you have an awe for God and you have a reverence for God, you do not yet have the fear of God. There's one more critical component because it's not just about being in awe of God. It's not just about reverencing God. The right attitudinal posture towards God requires another thing, and that is an absolute sense of gratitude an absolute sense of gratitude. Remember, this is sun fear. This is the kind of fear that people have towards God that is the kind of fear a son or a daughter has towards their father, right? It's a sense of like deep love and knowing that that a good father has their benevolence, has their, has their best will in mind. But, but so this final thing is gratitude. This awesome God, this holy God, this being of unsurpassed glory and moral brilliance has not stood off aloof, but has come down and has identified with us in the person of Jesus. 
This God who, who is, blows away all of our categories, this God who, who is beyond anything we can imagine, this God whose moral brilliance would throw us in absolute shock and we would be undone, has humbled himself and come down into our world and has died for us. And that doesn't shake you to your core. You don't have the fear of God. Because when you see that, you're filled not only with awe and reverence, but this immense sense of gratitude that makes you want to sing and praise. That's, that's what we're here for. Somehow, miraculously, this God who is worthy of so much worship and glory has loved us so deeply that the love of God is so profound and deep, we will spend eternity and never be able to tap out this profound love that our Creator has for us. And when all three of those come together in your mind, you are struck with the fear of God. All right, I want to close with this. Christians, are you guarding your steps? Are you guarding your steps? As a church, let's come together and let's become a people that when we're together, it's not about our preferences and is everything up to snuff. We're here to worship. Let's make that our priority. Every Sunday, let's come together and let's start off, start off Saturday night. Get ready. We're going to come before the creator of the universe. You know, look at, look at, this, look at these angels. Let them remind you. This, you know, just, it's just a piece of art. But let them remind you that there is a profound world that we are joining in with when we come together to worship. What about your prayer time? Do you need to do some adjustments there? Do you need to change some things? You spend some time in solitude, some time listening, some time just meditating on God's word, some time just zipping it and saying, Lord, I'm your servant. I'm here to listen. You know everything. You have everything in control. I'm going to be still and know that you are God. What about your vows? Have you made vows to God? Keep those vows. If you haven't been keeping them, repent of that and let God know, forgive me, I'm going to keep these vows. Have you made vows you shouldn't have made? Don't make foolish vows. Be careful what you vow, but honor God. Honor God with your lips and your life. If you're not a Christian, I want to ask you this. Why did you choose the fear you're choosing? You say, I don't have any fear of God. I don't believe in God. I'm, I, I don't believe God. Here's the reality. The reality is, if you don't fear now, you will fear. You will face God. That's an uncomfortable truth in our culture of narcissism, our culture which says you are the center of the universe. The reality is, is that every single one of us is going to face our creator. But here's the thing, right now, that God, the God that made you, holds out life. He says, I've died for you. I've done everything to bring you into my loving arms. How can you turn away from that? Why would you turn away from that? Let's pray. Our creator and our redeemer, we praise you for your word. We praise you that you have spoken to us. We praise you that you have given yourself to us. We ask that our lives would be a response of genuine worship. You are Lord, you are King, you are Creator. Amen.